20 years ago, I was invited by someone to go speak on a cruise. I'd never been on a cruise before, but when I heard the conditions, I said, absolutely, don't need to pray about it. So I got to go for free. I paid for Lori's way. The two of us went, and we went on our first cruise, the interior part of Alaska. And you guys, I'd never done this before. It was amazing. The food was outrageous. It is from one cafeteria to the other. You, you start out just overwhelmed, and then all of a sudden you go to the next one the next day and the next day and the next day, and finally you, you find yourself just sort of sitting there going, well, I don't know, let's not go to that one because they're only serving steak and shrimp. It was amazing. Best meal ever was one night at midnight they were serving again. And I decided to go down and get a little something to eat. And I walked back into my room with three or four shish kebabs with steak and chicken on it. I turned on ESPN and that's when it hit me. I'm on the interior part of Alaska eating steak and chicken, watching ESPN with my wife this is heaven. This is awesome. Imagine my surprise when I turned open the scripture this week to start thinking about what the Bible says about the best meal ever. I was surprised to discover that in the mind of scripture, it is not just food. It's a place. In the beginning, God created a feast. We miss this, but it's there. The Lord God planted a garden with all kinds of trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And the Lord God took the man that he had made, placed him in the garden to work it and to protect it. And he said to the man, you may eat from any tree in the garden except for that one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the Garden of Eden was a place where work was meaningful. Every desire was satisfied fully. The Garden was a place where our relationships, our personalities were together, they were whole. Coming out of the garden, I start to think that a feast in the mind of God, as I said, is not just a meal, it's a place. Sometimes inside, sometimes around us, it's a place where God provides. The trees were there when the man arrived. It's a place where people live in abundance where everyone has enough. A place where we eat until we are full without over-consuming. A place where that eating brings us together. And tonight, well, we know tomorrow, <laughs> there will still be the trees. For God said in Genesis 1, I give you every seed-bearing plant and every tree that bears fruit. It is there for your food. The Garden of Eden was a feast. We miss this. Because we focus on the one tree that was forbidden. We never even notice the rest of the garden. 
we could have. Well, you know the rest of the story. Wanting what we should not have, we let go of everything else. We were so focused on the tree of knowledge, we abandoned the tree of life. And herein lies the first and greatest temptation of all feasts, the undisciplined pursuit of more. It is the capacity to stand in front of what God has given us in abundance and still want one more thing. God, in his wisdom, knows that with ultimate permission, you may eat from any tree, always comes restraint. You must not eat from that one. The unrestrained pursuit of more will kill us. And this is what it did. Whenever we try to consume what God has forbidden, our lives do not get richer, do they? They get poorer. The more of those things we eat or do, the hungrier we get until we stuff ourselves empty. After the fall, things fell apart. The feast fell apart. The fruit begins to wither. The trees show their age. Citizens turn into consumers. Consumers, <laughs> said John McKnight, is anybody who has surrendered the power to other things to make them happy. When we give to things the power to make us happy, we go from citizens to consumers. So it's not about shopping, he says. It's about a change in values. After the fall, we no longer worked together, and nature no longer worked with us. And so after the fall, there was corruption, dis-ease, drought, pestilence, conflict, competition, ultimately famine. The feast becomes a famine. There are three famines in the book of Genesis, three big ones anyway, and the worst is at the end, in the days of Joseph. And in the days of Joseph, what happened was not just the loss of food, but the migration of wealth. Genesis 41 makes this abundantly clear. So bad was the poverty that all nations traveled to Egypt to buy their grain. So what happened in those days of famine was not just the loss of food, but the migration of resources from the many to a few. 
Israel themselves moved into Egypt and lived in a land called Goshen, which was the best of all lands. And it seemed for a while like God was replanting the garden, like he was starting over, like this was going to be the new feast. Genesis makes clear that literally everything Israel did in the land of Goshen turned good, and they multiplied in number Until one day a pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, nor Joseph's God. In fact, he had many gods, and he imposed slavery on the people of God. He held them hostage, and he held them down. He confiscated their babies and threw them to their death in the Nile. And the people of God cried out in their poverty, and in their hunger for God to save them. And one day he heard them, and this is what he said, I have heard the cries of my people, and I have come down to rescue them and to lead them to a spacious land flowing with (laughs) milk and honey. There it is again. It's like the feast is coming back. It was there, it was gone, and now God is going to bring it back again. Pharaoh won't have it. He refuses the offer. And so, the rest of Exodus is a contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh, Israel's God. In fact, the questions that govern the book of Exodus is who does Israel belong to and where does Israel belong? Do they belong in a brickyard of scarcity and futility and conflict or do they belong somewhere else in a festival? After a long argument Moses lost, he goes to see Pharaoh for the first time, and this is the first thing he says to the king of the Egyptian empire. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the desert. It's a striking metaphor, isn't it? I bet if you tried, you could think of other things you could call that exodus. But in God's mind, the exodus was never just leaving from captivity it was always a trip to a festival and of all places he would have a festival in the desert where nothing grows it's as if God is promising to do it once again there in the desert where other people would starve I will find a land of plenty a land of abundance where everyone has access and everyone can eat to the full and where their eating brings them together and when they will know every evening what will happen in the morning when pharaoh hears moses say this he insists that israel belongs to him And so God sends into Egypt ten plagues designed to cripple their economy. He turns the Nile, the main source of irrigation, into blood so the water is gone. He kills the livestock. He sends hail and locusts to destroy the field. By about halfway through the book of Exodus, 
Pharaoh is in a brickyard of his own. The markets have crashed. The people are hungry. They're starving. And now, after 10 plagues, God decides to come and bring his people to a festival with a feast. On the night of the Passover, I bet you could think of other things you would do if you had to get everything you'd owned your entire life and leave a country that you would never go back to. But do you know what Yahweh has his people do? Feast. What becomes known as the feast of the Passover And if you read carefully the instructions in Exodus chapter 12, you will start to hear rules or instructions for their eating that sound an awful lot like those in the Garden of Eden. You will take the lamb that the Lord God provides. You will eat as much of it as you want. Eat until you're full, but don't overeat. If your neighbor does not have any, share it with him. Don't save any until the morning. Eat together in your tents, in extended families, and get ready to move. What seems to us like a strange way to leave a 400-year captivity is, in fact, the first meal in a feast to come. For what follows in the book of Exodus is a series of miracles all performed in the desert all performed with God's people, all of them miracles of abundance. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. He is calling his people to a festival of abundance in a place where nothing grows. If you'll allow me to do a brief interlude right here. It begins to seem toward the end of Exodus that this feast or this festival of God is not just a big meal. It's an entirely different economy. And it is nothing like the economy of Egypt. God is establishing in the Exodus an entirely different way to think about not just food, but all things we own. Where do they come from? How do we manage them? How do we use them? 
What are they for? How do we know tonight that there will be enough tomorrow? And if you think for a moment about the conversations you've had about money in the last six months in your house, I bet you've had one of those conversations. Where does it come from? You think you know, but you're not sure how to manage it, and you don't know how to use it, and you're sure not what it's for. And you worry as you get older, don't you, if there will be enough for retirement. What is offered in the Exodus is an entirely different way to think about everything we have. Following the Exodus the feast of the Passover, God will introduce Israel to the feast of weeks and then the feast of ingathering. <laughs> and then there was the Sabbath every seven days, which was never just a day off. It was when the family gathered, extended families gathered for the day and they ate to the fill. And then there was the Jubilee. Every 50 years, when someone was in debt, they were released. And it's almost as if God has put in front of his people a series of festivals with feasts and Sabbaths and jubilees designed to give them a different economy no matter where they live. It's an economy where God provides an economy where we have abundantly, where everyone has access and everyone eats enough. An economy that brings us together instead of pulls us apart, where we always know what we'll have tomorrow because, well, God will always provide. And Israel lives this way for a long time until they don't. And when they don't, God sends more famine. And behind the famine, he sends armies. First it was Babylon, then it was Persia, then it was Greece, and then it was Rome. And each one of them tore away a little more at this vision that God has for a feast. In the midst of her captivity, there is a prophet, Isaiah. And Isaiah has a, he has a, a vision and, and in it he sees a day that is far, far ahead of him. Hundreds, maybe thousands of years. But it's a day that Israel thought they would never see again. Isaiah says there is coming a day when God himself will be a refuge for the poor. God himself will take care of the needy. God will be a shelter for people who stand in a storm. And then, and then 
Isaiah sees a feast. He says the Lord Almighty will come down from heaven and he will prepare a feast in the sight of all the nations. A feast with wine and the best of meats and the veil of death and darkness will be lifted Nobody believed him. Things were too imbalanced. Work was a picture of human ambition, creativity. It was Darwinian. And everyone did not have enough. The wealth had migrated terribly. And one day, a rabbi on a hillside outside of Bethsaida gathered 12 of his disciples. And around them, well, it was about 5,000 men. And if you think you know what happened, think again. When you remember that about 90% of the population in Rome was living in poverty or below poverty, that the wealthy and the powerful controlled the Senate and they controlled the laws. And every year when Rome assigned the taxes to Palestine, the wealthy and the powerful with laws shifted the weight of the taxes onto the poor so they themselves would not have to pay as much. Every historian of Rome knows this. Jesus has in front of him a multitude of people mostly poor. Only John tells us that Jesus performed this miracle at the time of the feast. The timing was important to John. This didn't just happen. It happened at the time of Israel's biggest feast. Only John tells us Jesus knew in advance what he was going to do. It was premeditated. Only John tells us that the loaves that the boy gave him were barley loaves, which proves they came from the poor. Everyone else ate grain. Only the poor could afford barley and that they were small. And only John tells us there was a conversation after this meal in which Jesus said to his disciples, I am the feast. Only John. Jesus takes the loaves and he orders the people to sit down on the grass. Everyone knows that the Jews ate in two different ways. They either ate while running in the morning or at lunch, 
or at supper, they sat down. This was never just a meal in Jesus' mind. This was always a feast. And when you remember that the only other festivals in that day were Roman festivals, which were exhibit, well, Google it. They were exhibitions of wealth. And they were by invitation only. And they were only among people that were wealthy, inviting other wealthy people. And they were never permission with restraint. It was pure permission. And they turned into orgies. We stuffed ourselves until we were empty. These were the Roman festivals. And there on the side of a hill outside Bethsaida, just like he did in the desert, in the days of Moses, Jesus pitched a different economy. One in which God provides. He held up the bread and blessed it. We thank thee, O God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. He brought it down and he broke it. And he started giving it away. And you're not going to believe this. But there was more than 5,000 poor people who hadn't eaten like this in years. <laughs> Only the Romans ate like this. Only when these people ate, they were full. Do not minimize this miracle as the mere multiplication of loaves. It is infinitely more than that. It is done in the teeth of the Roman economy. Jesus is establishing another way to live. Not only with food, but with all things. Here is how it works. It all comes from God. We have it in abundance, and everybody has access to it. Everyone eats until they are full, and it brings us together. And we know tonight there will be more tomorrow. In a moment, we'll step into, well, it's the Last Supper. If you're here with kids, you might want to get them if you want your kids to join you. Now's a good time. You can release kids, grandkids. Let me finish the story. St. John, St. John was, was in the room when Jesus took the bread, blessed it, 
broke it, and gave it away. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus says in cryptic words that no other writer remembers. He said in the presence of St. John, we will not do this again until we do it with my Father who is in heaven. And the thought must have occurred to him, wait a minute, there's going to be one more. (laughs) God is going to do this again. He's going to gather people one more time. Is God going to plant another garden? Is there going to be another feast, another place where everyone has enough and it never runs out? In the waning years of his life, St. John, who was in the room, was on the Roman Empire's version of Alcatraz. It's a prison on an island known as Patmos. It's where they put people to forget them. John, who is surrounded by the Roman way, a way of ambition, a way of imbalance, a way of excess, all permission, no restraint. The rich got richer and the poor ran out and the rich lived off the poor and must have been sick of it. One night he went out to the shores of that island. I stood there one day. And in the night he looked up in the sky and he had a vision. He saw one more feast. He said, I saw a throne with a lamb that looked like he was slain, and around that lamb there were 12, no, 24 elders, and around the elders, he said, there were thousands upon thousands of angels, and they were singing with a loud voice, you are worthy because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe, every language, every nation and you made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then John said, then I heard a voice and it sounded like a great multitude. It sounded like rushing waters, like peals of thunder and the voice said, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns and the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride, the church, has made herself ready. She is dressed in linens, bright and clean. And the angel turned to me, said John, and he said, Blessed are those invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
every time we eat together in the presence of God, we look back to Eden and we look forward to redemption. Every time we take the Last Supper, it's a rehearsal for what is to come. It reminds us of a day when things were the way they were supposed to be. And it reminds us of a day when they will be that way again. And let's not minimize this sacrament as though it were just a reminder that by in it, one day God will make everything right. Thanks be to God. This is also a commitment of ourselves and everything we have to live in the way of the Lamb. God will do it someday, writ large across the world. But God is already doing it today with us.